0: Together. Thanks
1: for listening to the KC Morning Show.
0: It's... I'm going, to City, going to City. On January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City chiefs. TV9 News Special Report, close-up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Citians must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riot? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue.
1: Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. here. Professor Harvey K, my brother, Professor Emeritus of the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Now, on this show, there's there's two of us here, and I know one of us on this program has celebrated a birthday, and I know it's not
0: me, so uh, who
1: could that be? Happy birthday, Professor Kay.
0: Thank you very much. It was Saturday, in fact, and I tried my dandest to make it last the whole weekend. Went down to Milwaukee to have brunch at a place we like a lot called Cafe Central. It's going to sound very mundane to people, but- I love sitting at the bar and ordering bacon and eggs with a mimosa. Although I didn't like the mimosas this week, so I switched over and I had an unusual thing for me, a fairly hoppy beer because a pretty hoppy beer is not unlike a a mimosa, you know, it's like citrusy. So, uh, when my wife and I walk in, they actually just put the mimosas down on the bar.
1: So, when are we getting the mimosa
0: breakdown? When is that book coming out, my friend? It's funny I should say that because I've often thought playfully about books that have nothing to do with all my work. So, one book I wanted to write was club sandwiches I have known. I wanted to travel around at diners and places like that and have the club sandwiches because it's amazing something as everyone knows what a club sandwich is, right? It's turkey, bacon, tomato, lettuce, but it's amazing how these things can vary. The quality of the bacon, the kind of bake, the turkey itself, how much lettuce they put on. And I want to say just last week in... uh Mackinac City, Michigan, I had one of the finest turkey club sandwiches I would had in a long time, just for the record, at a place called Darrow's, in case anybody is up there. The other thing I i love, and I really would love to do a, a little book on this, the kind of book you could buy as you're leaving a food store and they have a little point of purchase. Coleslaws, I have known. What? You eat coleslaw? I love coleslaw. So when you go to a restaurant, you know, and maybe you want to get a burger or a turkey sandwich or a club sandwich, whatever the hell. You know, not a fancy place. You know, they'll offer you a choice of this, this, or that. And if I see coleslaw, I say coleslaw, and it's amazing. So, for example, there's the coleslaws, you know, that are are sort of creamier kind of coleslaw, and then there's the kind which is the sweet and sour coleslaw. I mean, it's a real variety. I I I love trying coleslaws. This is fascinating. I love where we took this. We took a walk. You know, I had a whole thing planned, but coleslaw with Professor K. That's got legs, my friend. In fact, when we've made it all the way through America's Promise, and when we've realized America's (laughs) Promise in spite of the politics of the day, we'll do a food episode. How's that? I love that. Book that one. Hartzell wanted me to talk about that stuff because he did not want to talk about what happened yesterday in Kansas City, okay? Or last night in Kansas City. Was it that obvious? You called me out pretty quick on that. (laughs) Yeah. Keep in mind, the only reason I can say this as I'm speaking with a smile on my face is that in spite of the... Utterly ridiculous conclusion of the Packers versus the Bengals game. (laughs) We did win with a field goal. It was the most ridiculous, hysterical game I think I've ever seen. Five missed
1: field goals. What were we watching?
0: Right. Okay, we'll get there, though. You will.
1: You'll have a turnaround. And it's time for us to turn it around, my friend. You ready to take back America? Always. This one's a big one. In fact, I think this one's a great checkpoint for where we have been taking this entire series? Because we're trying to bring that radical history to the present, not just look at some static document, right? We're trying to make this a progressive in motion kind of thing. And today, we're going to take a look back at a recent report. This is that 1776 commission put
0: together by the Trump administration. Professor K, break it down. Well, first of all, let's face Donald Trump doesn't know any history. And the history he knows is an utterly perverse one. Let's get that clear, okay? And the the proof of that is the comical moment when he spoke of Frederick Douglass as if Frederick Douglass was still alive. We're proud now that we have a museum in the National Mall where people can learn about Reverend King, so many other things. Frederick Doug- Douglass is an example of Somebody who's done an amazing job and is being recognized more and more, I notice. And if any of you are interested in Frederick Douglass, go back and look at Kartzel's and my episode on what to the slave is the 4th of July. But at the same time, his sense of history is utterly perverse when he could refer to the events in Charlottesville or refer to what transpired looking out from his vantage point and say there were good people on both sides or something like that. I mean, only a Nazi sympathizer could probably come up with that kind of rationale or thinking, just utterly ridiculous. But in any case, Trump probably pushed a bit by the right wingers, such as the man who inspired us to take this whole series on, Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri. So they created by an executive order, the 1776 commission. This commission was charged with the idea of preparing a document, basically for how Americans should start learning about, teaching about, and thinking about American history. And they claim it was with the intention of creating a unified vision, something Americans could rally around. And all the more essential, they said, because we were as divided today as we were in the days of the revolution against Britain and in the time of the Civil War when the Southern states sought to separate from the United States. So this was meant to be a unifying document, especially in light of the fact that we're only now five years years away from the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence and the Declaration of the United States as an independent nation. This is what it's framed with, that kind of thinking. And they want to emphasize, and I've got the preface here in front of me, they wanted to emphasize that this was meant to be a nonpartisan initiative. They couldn't say bipartisan because there's no way that any smart progressive historian, at least, would have ever signed on to this endeavor. But they have in the opening paragraphs this statement. Most of the history set forth in this report enjoys broad agreement among scholars. Uh, I don't think so, just for the record. Okay. And there's something else I actually want to call to people's attention in the preface is that they constantly say in history, in the record of American history, will be found the truth about what America's founders meant intended and envisioned in establishing this nation. Now, let me make something clear. The biggest problem that many people have is they treat the founders as if they were all of the same mind, that they all were thinking alike at that time, the founders and then the framers. The arguments, however, that went into the ultimate question of what would go into the declaration and later into the constitution were powerful arguments. The bodies involved, meaning the you know the, the cohorts severely divided. And many of the people who we associate with one document or the other might well have walked out in disgust at what transpired. Alexander Hamilton may have played a major role in creating the Federalist Papers, and later the Constitutional Convention. But he walked away basically scorned by a lot of people, rightly so, because he still had a kind of aristocratic notion of what the Constitution might involve. Similarly, if you think back to the Declaration itself, there was a pretty heated debate, which unfortunately Jefferson lost, that Jefferson himself wanted to include a statement scorning the King of England for having imposed upon the American colonies' slavery, which, by the way, is a bit of an exaggeration. But the fact is, there were serious arguments and disagreements. So to say what the founders meant, intended, and envisioned is a fair statement as far as the the right wing is concerned, but we should be always careful about that kind of stuff. And I'll give you my prime argument against the generic nature of that statement, since Thomas Paine is the man we started with, the founder, the revolutionary we started with. Thomas Paine absolutely wanted to see the Declaration of Independence, okay? And he absolutely wanted to see a constitution. But Thomas Paine's work was all about democracy. And it's undeniable that the constitution created a republic and that there was a great deal of promise in the constitution, but we know the degree to which compromises were made that on the one hand allowed for the possibility of democracy and on the other hand generally could stand severely as obstructions to democracy. And you know, basically the electoral college stands as a prime example of that, the fact that the US Senate I guess is more than 100 years, the members of that Senate were elect- elected by the legislatures of the the home states. We're not going to get into that. The point is, what about the vision of American history that they offer? And what I want to point out along the way to everyone is that the words sound so nice at many times, but there are certain giveaways that appear in this document. Giveaways to the extent that this remains a right-wing document, a set of right-wing ambitions, the narrative they try to offer. On occasion, it has to do with the ways in which they include certain people or exclude certain people. And ultimately, it becomes all the more clear late in the document when they start to talk about what we need to do To make the 1776 report into a real program for America, it becomes pretty apparent what we're talking about, as, as you'll see when we get there. But let me remind everyone that this is a document created by conservatives and reactionaries who were eager to target the 1619 Project, which was produced out of the New York Times. Now, the 1619 Project is a terribly, terribly flawed project a project that becomes an easy target not only for right wingers, but equally for historically informed folks on the left. And I won't get into that right now. If anybody's interested, look up the arguments of Adolf Reed Jr. Okay, They can look at some of my arguments online. More importantly, they can have a look at, say, uh, Gordon Woods stuff that was on the World Socialist Web, or for that matter, James Oakes, who's, I think, one of the finest historians today of the Civil War period regarding Lincoln slavery, he wrote a great book, if any of you are interested, The Radical and the Republican, about Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. Can I follow up on that real quick? Please do. Radical
1: versus reactionary, mm. because the conservatives have co-opted the word radical. Yes,
0: they have. You know, back when I was a kid, and I mean little kid, after World War II, there were these two terms readily used to dismiss groups of people. The word radical was used to dismiss folks on the left. Oh, they're radicals, which was basically a stand-in word on occasion for socialists, another way of saying, oh, they must be communists or anarchists, whatever. But then there was a word to refer to folks who were beyond conservative on the right. And by the way, conservatives were not exactly popular themselves for many years after World War II because they had been much too soft on fascism leading up to World War II. But the point is, the term that was used was reactionaries. good example would be the John Birch Society. They were not conservatives. They were reactionaries. So there was this general sense that if the word radical appeared, it was going to be left if the word reactionary period, it was right. Now, why was that? Well, radical were those folks who wanted to grab hold of the aspirations of the Declaration, not necessarily the founders, but the Declaration, the aspirations of Thomas Paine, and create a far more freer, equal, and democratic America. Period. Reactionaries were folks who wanted to basically, I'll never forget the expression, turn back the clock. Conservatives, by the way, don't always want to turn back the clock. They just want to slow it any kind of progressive change down or prevent it. But reactionaries literally would have been glad to go back before the New Deal, which is why, for example, even the likes of Ronald Reagan, when he switched to the right, he went reactionary. There's no doubt in my mind. Later, he comes across as the conservative. Barry Goldwater seemed to be the voice of conservative politics. He was a reactionary. They wanted to reverse the New Deal. And then, of course, there were the utter racists among them. And those guys had their own racialism for sure. But others who, as far as they were concerned, would have been happy to go back to the 19th century and the Operation of the races. So the other day, as you saw, I keep running into this term radicals being used by centrist Democrats, referring to conservatives and reactionaries as radicals. And I said on Twitter and in any number of places, whatever happened to that good old term reactionaries? That's all. Whatever happened to that? That was a good term, because if you just use the word radical to refer to everything that you think is beyond the pale, as Claire McCaskill, your former senator from Missouri, did when she thought Trump and Bernie were both extremists. You know, Bernie and Trump may well have been, if you like, popular, but they sure as hell were not the same. My God. Okay, so
1: there you go. And that's what neoliberalism does. It equates the far left and the far right as the same
0: thing, which I think defeats the entire purpose, right? And neoliberals are basically conservatives in political economy. They may not be conservatives on social and cultural issues, but they're decidedly conservative on political economy, which is to say that they're more than happy to give tax breaks to the rich, to take away economic justice programs from working people and the poor so professor k you're ready to dig into this thing where do you start you laid out the preface where do we even begin <laughs> well let's start with the nice words at the very opening first words they open this text this document this report in the course of human events okay and they say americans will never falter in defending the fundamental truths of human liberty proclaimed on july 4th 1776 we will we must always hold these truths That seems nice. That's a sweet opening, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Almost an opening that I might have made, as I once said, as Josh Hawley tried to hijack the radical story of America. And they then say, look, the declared purpose of the president's commission is to enable a rising generation to understand the history and principles of the founding of the United States in 1776 and to strive to form a more perfect union. So this program they're offering is in part intended as a restoration of American education so that people will learn and I quote, an accurate, honest, unifying, inspiring, and ennobling rendition of the American story. Okay, well, I'm ready to give them that story. Well, you and I are going to give them that story, but that's not the story they want, right? So let's see where they go from there. Soon into their little text, there's a giveaway here. We all know what facts are. Facts are things that people, whether they're on the right, Or the left can probably agree upon facts are truths however much the right wants to demolish the idea of truth once upon a time whether you were conservative or liberal there was an agreement over certain facts but facts do not necessarily declare their meaning That's the point. And when you try to tell a story by grabbing hold of the facts of the past, you're now getting into the realm of understanding, of meaning. Narrative is the story you want to tell that people will then better understand where they've come from or where they want to go. And on those grounds, we do not agree with these folks of the 1776 Commission. They claim facts of our founding are not partisan. Well, yeah, the facts are not partisan. But the story will differ on the right and the left and even in the sense in the middle. And by the way, let me make it clear. I do have conservative friends and we have fine discussions and arguments I even admire many of the figures that too often are scorned on the left. But I do so fully aware of the fact that these folks are not saints. We're not always honorable. That even if they oppose slavery, they might well still have been racists. In fact, one could argue that some of them opposed slavery because it was an economic burden, slavery. The question was, where were they going to get their workforce? They would always ask themselves, what are we going to do about that? So they say, look. We all know the facts, and if we study the facts, the truth will emerge. Well, it is the case. You can wield facts against wrong-headed narratives, whether they're left or right, but facts unto themselves do not create the story. That involves the hand, if you like, of the storyteller, whether it's a poet, a songwriter, or most especially an historian. And so the real question, what story are we going to tell, right? I mean, there's the right-wing story, and then there's Take Back America, our story that we're trying to tell, which we think is most inspiring and ennobling and unifying if properly entertained. So they emphasize that at the fundamental moment in America, the founders and this is true. Those who signed the Declaration basically projected a promise, as you and I have already considered. And it was a promise whose first line is "All men are created equal." Now, all well and good. That's a fact. It's in the story. I mean, it's in the it's in the Declaration. But what are the implications of "All men are created equal"? And the implications are in the very next set of words and lines: "Endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness." Now, yeah, we. We know that's a fact, but the question is, What does life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness mean? Ask anyone, what does it take to live? And I bet the answer they would give you is going to be different than the answer that even a prosperous farmer of 1776 would give you. And they acknowledged that Americans at that time were not living up to that promise. And there was a gross contradiction in American life at that time. Nevertheless, as Frederick Douglass would agree, the promise transcended the contradiction. And in fact, as they also understand, the, the promise itself, ends up becoming an inspiration for others to demand that America live up to that. Or as Martin Luther King would one day say, there's a promissory note. Hey, we're here to collect. And I say that without sarcasm, with great admiration. And they emphasize that what makes America unique and unusual, what makes it unique and unusual is that it's a nation that is founded by way of a declaration that projects that promise. In that sense, it creates a new nation. Basically, we hold these truths. And not surprisingly, their very next chapter, the meaning of the declaration. so I'm going to ask you to go to chapter two, the meaning of the declaration. And on the second paragraph, in other respects start reading there so people can hear some of the some of the things they're hoping or trying to imply in this meaning of the declaration in other respects however the
1: united states is unusual it is a republic that is to say its government was designed to be directed by the will of the people rather than the wishes of a single individual or a narrow class
0: of elites this is important that is a very telling argument i'll never forget When I was in the library back, this is like 40 years ago at the University Library, and I came across the magazine of the John Birch Society. And their opening editorial, and this was fundamental to their entire being, was the United States was founded as a republic, not a democracy. Please remember, everybody, conservatives and reactionaries will over and over again say we were founded as a republic, not a democracy. But look at how they define this now. As you just read, the United States is Unusual in that it was founded as a republic. Government was designed to be directed by the will of the people. Well, tell me, what's a democracy? What does the word democracy mean? Demos? People? Kratos rule? So Hartzell, what does it mean? It sounds to me like democracy is exactly what they said, directed by the will of the people. Right, the people rule rather than the wishes of a single individual or narrow class of elites. So it's as if they're they're already dancing here, okay? Or no, they're skating. <laughs> they're skating. Uh, skating's fun, I guess, but they're skating, okay? Or they're hiding behind words, avoiding the notion of democracy because they are sticking closer to the reactionary and conservative term republic. Now, let me make it clear to everyone. In the late 18th century, as Gordon Wood himself once wrote, Republicanism as a political philosophy and a politics was as radical as Marxism would become in the 19th and 20th century. But I would point out that Republicanism was pregnant with democracy. I know that's a gendered way of looking at it, but it was pregnant with democracy. That is, if you define republicanism as they just did, basically speaking, the average working person, whether they were a farmer or an artisan or a a sailor, seaman kind of, you know, whatever, laborer back in the late 18th century would have said, well, I guess we're going to have a democracy. The people are going to rule. Hell, the constitution itself says we the people. And when we get to the constitution in this document, we're going to see how they dance around that one a little bit too. Now, several paragraphs later, they have this line, there was no United States of America before July 4th, 1776. A fact. There was not yet formally speaking an American people. And they go on from there. What they really are trying to say there is not just that July 4th matters, it's that forget whatever you heard about the 1619 Project, because the 1619 Project is saying that America from the very beginning had slavery and slavery is the great sin of America. And that sin is persists because the founders and framers did not abolish slavery. Now, that much I'll grant to the 1619 Project. However, if we fail to see the historical context of slavery and then later fail to see the degree to which, and this is in favor of the 1776 report, the revolution was a revolution that, however inadequate what we ourselves, these 200 or more years later, now look back and say, geez, why the didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? It is the case. People fail to appreciate that the revolution launches real, real anti-slavery momentum in what now is going to be called the United States of America. That is the case. The problem is that you and I will appreciate that and we'll look at the struggles that go into that. They don't want to do that. They don't talk about struggles here. Whenever they want to talk about progress. They say the American people made progress. Well, it's all well and good to say the American people, but a goodly number of those American people were literally the folks who did not want an end of slavery, number one. They did not want to grant working men themselves the right to vote. They did not want to include women under the category of citizen. I mean, you can't say the American people when you're talking about the making of history because the making of American history involved a struggle all too often, as we know, between people rising up and demanding the rights that were implied, not implied, promised by the declaration. I always
1: feel like it's lost when you read over the course of human events, they take that as if it was some evolutionary term. America was just going to always be America. But in that sentence, what were those
0: courses? Those are struggles that had to be won. You bet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just to show that I'm not I'm not a strictly partisan intellect, however much that may be the case, in the course, okay. (laughs) On page nine in the text that I have in front of me, they turn to a really significant element of the American Revolution. I mean really significant element, which we all too often forget. I I think I've said this before when we talked about Thomas Paine and, and some others. The revolution did create did create all the more an example for the world to see. Of a nation which was not characterized by a state religion. That even though the Declaration failed to indicate the imperative of separating church and state, Thomas Paine's common sense made it clear to Americans, at least a goodly majority of Americans, that to engage in the revolution was to create as later will be the case, a godless constitution. And I don't mean godless in the sense that it's an immoral document, as Christians might misunderstand me. But what I'm saying is there is no provision for religion in the constitution. Indeed, in any other place in the world at the time, there would have been a requirement that to run for office, you had to be of a certain faith. There is no religious test No religious oath is required. I know that people later would have to swear on the Bible, but to run for office, to be a citizen, you do not have to be... Now, the states themselves still had some religious biases and laws and rules, but those two would be brought to an end by 1831, 1832, as the Bill of Rights came to prevail all the more effectively, slowly but surely. And there were those who fought to make sure that happened. But this report really does say, look, the Declaration speaks of both laws of nature and of nature's God. It appeals, in other words, to both reason and revelation. Now, the only thing about that is they're pushing a little bit on that revelation in the sense that yeah, revelation, but they're getting awfully close to the Christian sense of things, obviously. And they're also failing to acknowledge how many of the founding generation, the likes of Thomas Paine, we know especially, but Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, were not in their faith Christian. They were deists. They believed in God. They were not atheists. But if they went to church at all, they did so as a nominal activity, not as a, a deep commitment. And I'm willing to argue with anyone about that. But they repeat again this whole idea of equality over and over again through this whole section. And of course, as I think you mentioned, they even bring Martin Luther King to bear here. Okay? More power to them for doing that. Why don't you read the quote from King here? When the architects of our republic
1: wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and And the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men, as well as white men, will be guaranteed the unalienable
0: rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. By the way, when they quote... Martin Luther King, as similarly when they quote Frederick Douglass, in one sense, I take it as a sincere effort to be inclusive. But I also don't think we should fail to appreciate that they themselves, they feel compelled to do so because we all know that the politics that they embrace, generally speaking, was antagonistic to the civil rights movement. In fact, we know it was antagonistic to the civil rights movement. And the politics that they've been pursuing for all too many years is an effort to literally undo the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And they've been so effective at it, they now get to pass laws around the country and states setting up all the more obstacles for people to exercise their right to vote, not only African Americans, but also students, poor people, the elderly, all of those who they fear might actually want to vote democracy and this is happening right now you bet even as you and i are speaking now of course they also try to impress harvey k in this text (laughs) in the section a constitution of principles they actually quote my hero our hero in many ways thomas paine from common sense because they're emphasizing that in america the law is fundamental not a king the law. And I love the quote that they use. I love this quote. In Common Sense, Payne wrote, for as in absolute governments, the king is law. So in free countries, the law ought to be king and there ought to be no other. But let any ill use should afterwards arise. Let the crown at the conclusion of the ceremony be demolished and scattered among the people whose right it is. In other words, to have this symbolic moment where you take a crown and you destroy it and set it afire. Whatever's left of it, you divide it up among the people because in America, the law will be king. But Paine also meant by that, that the people will be sovereign. The people will rule, okay? And it's interesting that on the very next page from that quote, they have a quote by Alexander Hamilton, And would you like to read that Hamilton quote? The safety of a republic depends essentially on the
1: energy of a common national sentiment, on a uniformity of principles and habits, on the exemption of the citizens from foreign bias and prejudice, and on that love of country, which will almost invariably be found to be closely connected with birth,
0: education, and family. Yeah, in my text, I wrote next to it, huh? (laughs) I didn't get that at all. Look, everybody's smarter than I am, so they may get it, but I just thought to myself, Birth, education, and family. It looks like who's was about to set up an aristocracy. Absolutely. That's what it sounded like. Now, some paragraphs, not too many paragraphs later, but some paragraphs later, they get to the point that the Constitution does open with a preamble that reads, we, the people of the United States. I want you to read that because I'm going to show you who they're beholden to, what kind of politics. As I said to you, if you read these things closely, you can see the degree to which they really don't like democracy. They don't like the idea of we the people. They don't like the idea. They don't like the idea that America should not be. I won't even go further. We'll show people. While the Constitution is fundamentally a compact
1: among the American people, in parenthetical here, its first seven words are we the people of the United States. It was ratified by special conventions in the states. The people of the states admired and cherished their state governments, all of which had adopted Republican constitutions before a federal constitution was completed. Hence, the framers of the new national government had to respect the state's prior existence and jealous guarding of their
0: own prerogatives. This is a nod to the vile idea of states' rights. Now, states should vary in many ways. Even Thomas Paine said that states can be laboratories, experiments of democracy, you might say. But that's not what they're doing here. They're saying that somehow the federal constitution owes something, a nod, a bow to these state constitutions. And that's bull the federal constitution is the constitution of the United States. And the giveaway here is they open up with while, whenever you say while, <laughs> okay, it's coming. And by the way, Gouverneur Morris, who was a very conservative member of the founding generation who despised Thomas Paine. And if you go back and listen to the Thomas Paine episode, I think I make reference to that fact. But Gouverneur Morris was fearful of the possibility that those Southern states would somehow be able to impose their slavery upon the United States. So he, this conservative, is the man who actually, I understand, authored the words, we the people of the United States, in order to prevent anyone from having it say, we the states of the United States. It isn't the states that created the union. It's the people who created the United States. That we really have to emphasize. That was Lincoln's whole point, that states did not have the right to secede because states were not those who first created the United States. And then very soon after, they go to talk about republicanism. Again, this emphasis upon republican form of government, republicanism. And I put a line to myself there, not democracy with a question mark. All I can tell you is that when Thomas Paine wrote Common Sense, Americans rose up in a revolutionary fashion to create a democratic republic. And the constitution bears the imprint of that aspiration. Okay, And I think that's important. But then they go on, this is interesting, they go on to talk about the imperative of the constitution. They say, The framers of the Constitution faced a twofold challenge. They had to assure those alarmed by the historical record that the new government was not too Republican. When they say too Republican, they meant not too Democratic, while also reassuring those concerned about overweening centralized power. In other words, a balance between, they don't use the term, democracy and elitism. Here's an interesting next line. This is a classic conservative argument against democracy. The main causes of prior Republican
1: failure were class conflict and tyranny of the majority. In the simplest terms, the largest single faction in any republic would tend to band together and unwisely wield their numerical strength against unpopular minorities, leading to conflict and eventual collapse.
0: The idea of assuring the rights of minorities is in, is what we're told this was all about. But the fact is, clearly, the way in which that term tyranny, the majority, was wielded, not only back in the days of James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and others, and but also if people look back to the 1950s, after World War II, when Americans came back from the war ready to fight at home for four freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Conservatives joined by those who wanted to sound conservative, but probably had a radical record once upon a time and were trying to avoid that record on their record. They use this term, the tyranny of the majority over and over and over again. This is what they used to call in the fifties, pluralist politics. That pluralism was the guarantee that the, the voices of the people would be heard. Every interest would generate its own movement. It would be one of a plurality of movement or a whole variety of movements. And that was the nature of democracy. In other words, they wanted to avoid the possibility That working people might have a real interest collectively in, let's say, universal health care. Let's say raising the minimum wage or literally guaranteeing a job with a living wage for all Americans. The conservatives and all too many liberals. A goodly number of those liberals were social democrats, but they were retreating from the FDR liberalism a.k.a. social democracy. It's funny for me to read this, is like hearing these voices of the past being resurrected in order to go after the 1619 project, which I myself have obviously serious reservations about, but they don't want to do what you and I would like them to do. You and I have done this these weeks and many weeks to come, because we want to remind Americans of the promise that not only was made in 1776, enhanced by way of the Bill of Rights, We want to remind people not only of that, but we want to remind people that in every generation, there were voices of Americans who took hold of that original promise and articulated them anew to not only force the power elite or the power elites to recognize that the promise was made and we're not going to put up with it. We're not going to put up with the absence of that promise being realized, but also in the course of that struggle to push the promise itself beyond The original idea, perhaps, of the founders. And they were visionary enough, probably to expect that, at least the likes of Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine, and even George Washington, as elitist as he was. And what do I mean by that? If you look closely at the Declaration of Sentiments from 1848, they push the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness beyond anything the founders themselves might have imagined, but very much do so in the spirit of the original promise. Frederick Douglass the same. Abraham Lincoln at Gettysburg, we just dealt with this, a new birth of freedom, not the revival of the old freedom, a new birth. That means... A new rendition, a new understanding, a new opportunity to enhance freedom, equality, and democracy. But what a great point! You know, we entered the pandemic. Everyone
1: kept saying this new normal, which is inherently an irony. And it's okay to say that what we're doing, this opportunity that we had, and unfortunately, I think may have passed us by. We had a chance to, to write a new book, down in the next chapter. Yeah, you can have some notes from the old trilogy, but this is this was a new thing, and I feel like we wasted that opportunity. And what we're trying to say is, no, 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 let's 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 keep workshopping this book because we got something radical and something great.
0: Right, and we are the authors, as FDR said, and we'll get to him later, obviously. Well, a bit later, they turn to the Bill of Rights. Well, what they make of it is very, very interesting in a perverse kind of way. So they say, towards the end of a a paragraph that ensues, the mere fact that a right is not mentioned in the Bill of Rights is neither proof nor evidence that it does not exist. So they're acknowledging that there are rights that may well exist that are not in the Bill of Rights. Nevertheless, they want to highlight They want to highlight what they say are three rights. Our first freedom, religious liberty, is foremost a moral requirement of the natural freedom of the human mind. Absolutely. Because religious liberty is really freedom of conscience. And they then go on. Faith is both a matter of private conscience and public import. They're pushing the idea that faith is important. They won't give that up. And these are conservatives and reactionaries. They then go on in the next paragraph to say, like religious liberty, freedom of speech and of the press is required by the freedom of the human mind. And I think we talked about the Bill of Rights and that First Amendment. It's like one writer said, it's Madison's song almost. So you've got freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and then freedom of assembly with the right of petition. So it's conscience, voice, voice over distances and through time. And then of course, assembly, which really drives home the democratic dimension. But what they do is very interesting. They don't mention assembly. They don't mention assembly, which I thought they would have done because they might've wanted to defend what they consider a mere assembly, January 6th mob action, but they don't do that. So they talk about religious liberty, freedom of speech, Freedom of the press, and then they jump. You must have caught this too. What did they jump to? Let's all say it together. They jump to the Second Amendment. You got it. Now people say, "Well, yeah, that's important." Well, not the way they're putting it. Read the paragraph about finally the right to keep and bear arms. Read that finally the right to keep and bear arms is required by
1: the fundamental nature right to life no man may justly be denied the means of his own defense the political significance of this right is hardly less important as armed people is a people capable of defending their liberty no less than their lives and
0: is the last desperate check against the worst tyranny now if you will forgive me I'm going to read the second amendment take it away professor K a well regulated militia a well regulated militia being Necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Does it say anything in there about an individual bearing a weapon to defend his life? Now, I think somebody should be able to defend his or her life. And I think if somebody's trying to kill you, you have a right to kill them first. Look, I'm not a pacifist. I mean, it'd be nice to be a pacifist. There's no mention there of a well regulated militia, there's no mention of being necessary to the security of a free state. There's no reference to the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed for that very purpose. So I'm not telling you that people should have to give up their hunting rifles. I'm not telling you people shouldn't be able to defend themselves. What I am saying is they make it out as if everybody should be carrying a weapon. That's pretty much what they're on the verge of saying. Well, what happened to the four freedoms of the First Amendment? Conscience, speech, press, and assembly with the right of petition. And then they go on the Bill of Rights in order to create a well-regulated militia. They don't even mention the well-regulated militia. I'm curious, Professor
1: Kay, as I'm scrolling through this thing, and my version is 45 pages, but I do see, see a heading
0: about progressivism. Oh, yes, let's do that. Late in the text, boys and girls, <laughs> early on in this section where they try to talk about movements, they said, indeed, great reforms like abolition, women's suffrage, anti-communism. What? Is that a reform, anti-communism? I've never been soft on communism. Let me make that clear. Though I have had friends who were communists. But where does it come off saying a great reform, anti-communism? Let's assume for the moment that there was even such a thing as an anti-communist reform. What would that be? Let me guess, McCarthyism. Yeah, they're doubling down on the Red Scare. Right, right. I mean, can you believe that? un believable. (laughs) Abolition, women's suffrage, anti-communism, next line, the civil rights movement, and the pro-life movement. This is the point where they take off their mask and they fully reveal themselves as right-wing folks that they are. And thank you for then calling my attention to that highlight, progressivism. They make progressivism out to be essentially a movement to grant Groups of people rights. They make no mention of the fact that the progressive movement was a, a movement, whatever its faults were, was a movement to try to drive corruption out of American democratic life. The great progressive political leaders, like Robert La Follette of Wisconsin, indeed, I'm actually going to include Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt. When they became progressive, it's because they left the Republican Party because the Republican Party was in bed with the big billionaires of the day, with the big railways, with the big banks. And they were talking about reforms to contain the power of those rich billionaire types. They make it out as if progressivism was an effort to give rights to particular groups. In fact, one of the biggest problems of progressivism is that it turned its back on the apartheid, the Jim Crow segregation that existed in the South. There were progressives who spoke out against segregation in the South. But as a movement, progressivism was rarely ever associated with trying to challenge Southern racism, Jim Crow and segregation, AKA apartheid. And then they've got this thing, fascism. I'm all in for fighting fascism, but they don't acknowledge the degree to which the United States at that moment had a kind of fascism in the South, that Jim Crow segregation. There's a line in here, I can't resist. This is regarding World War II. Everywhere American troops went, they embodied in their own ranks and brought with them the principles of the Declaration, liberating peoples and restoring freedom. Now, as you've asked me, as you've acknowledged, I'm a champion of the idea of the greatest generation. But there again, their sins should never be denied. There were anti Semites and racists aplenty in the ranks of the greatest generation. But they did fight for the four freedoms. They did literally transformed the United States in the course of the 1930s and 40s in order for the civil rights struggle to emerge as a major force in American life, for the labor movement to become the most dynamic force at that time in American life. But let us be clear, the American military was a segregated military. There were black companies and white companies. The Navy had blacks on board ships. But for all too long, they were generally in the mess, in the galleys. There were incidents throughout the war of progressive officers who broke down the lines of segregation. But it remains the case that the army was segregated during World War II. It was curious, in one sense, that African Americans were segregated from white troops. Mexican Americans, who in parts of the United States were segregated in schools, were not segregated. In the military, at least something positive there. So they go from fascism to communism. And then in that order of the evils, they put racism and identity politics. And so basically, who are the racists? The identity politics people. They acknowledge white racism. They do refer to literacy tests, poll taxes, and vigilante groups like the KKK. And then they're going to lump in, in these same paragraphs, identity politics. Now, I think we could use a damn good change in the way in which we understand ourselves as Americans. But it is the case that what they've done here is utterly perverse. The civil rights movement, they say, was almost immediately turned into programs that ran counter to the lofty ideals of the founders. You know what they're after? It isn't just 1619. Affirmative action. They want to drop affirmative action. It's as if the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act Took care of everything, not to worry. These are the very same people who are doing everything they can to destroy what remains of the Voting Rights Act.
1: I mean, it's just just amazing. Well, as I look through the rest of it, and I'll just give a quick overview, just some of just some of the headers that people can look forward to. The role of the family, teaching America, the scholarship of freedom, the American mind. It all sounds very
0: star-spangled awesome, Professor Kay. You mentioned the scholarship of freedom. The opening line's a good one. Universities in the United States are often today hotbeds of anti-Americanism, libel, and censorship. I won't deny that universities are troubled. Troubled not only by, if you like, political correctness on the left, but also... By something called what's that group called? Uh, Charlie Kirk, you know the YouTube stars that push this right wing agenda. I mean the Liberty Universities of the world as well. Hillsdale College is devoted to these kinds of things. Let's oh, the text I have is Larry P. Arn is the president of Hillsdale College in Michigan, which is arguably it's a promoter of right wing ideas and literally devoted to the promotion of right-wing ideas and now what they're doing is they're telling
1: you don't go to these liberal colleges they have adapted to the times you can go to youtube and hear a right-wing nut spew off conspiracy theories. And that's now taken as gospel because of pieces of, I put in air quotes, work like this, this
0: 1776 con mission. It's not a commission. It's a con mission. You know, let's be clear to people about what we're really in favor of. We're in favor of the story of America that takes hold of the promise and explores how Americans have struggled in all their diversity. Americans have struggled to realize that promise. And it's by no means a one-dimensional, one-line-into-the-future kind of experience. The Civil War presumably brought an end to slavery and secured the civil and political equality, at least of Black men. What did we witness in the South? The reactionaries emerged in the 1890s to create the Bourbon regimes of the South and literally to disenfranchise African Americans. And let's be clear, vast hosts of poor whites Because they couldn't frame the laws as racist. They had to frame them in class terms. So as long as it covers African-Americans in the majority, so what if whites can't vote? We don't want poor whites to vote anyhow, they would say. Because the ones who were writing the laws were all the richer property owners, small-scale industrialists, the sort of heirs of the plantations, you might say. And again, we're
1: going to sound like a broken record, but I think how you dispel stuff like this is big social democratic program, so that you can believe that your government is actually giving a damn about you and you don't have to then get co-opted by stuff like this. That through line, that promise, we can come together over that. And moreover,
0: in case anybody thinks we're being partisan, (laughs) as much as the problem lies decidedly in the Republican Party, what you and I are talking about also means the Democratic Party needs to be Either changed or overturned in its leadership. We can't have a political party calling themselves Democrats and then have congressional Democrats, eight of them, I believe it was, vote against raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. We can't have a party that calls themselves Democrats hamstrung by two senators. There may be more in number, but the others are hiding behind the skirts of mansion and cinema or behind, if you like, the capes of mansion and cinema. (laughs) Vampire images come to mind. We have to figure out how to generate solidarity on the left. And we have to figure out how to make our voices, how to make them heard all the more loudly It doesn't mean just everyone turns out in the streets. People have got to join the relevant organizations, the progressive organizations, the left organizations, labor unions, and make sure they are open to all. They are not by any means exclusive.
1: You know what? Believe it or not, Professor Kay, I'm going to say this. This 1776 commission, it got me pretty fired up but I think in the exact opposite ways is what they intended. It's time for us to reclaim our radical history. And you know what? I can't wait for us to create more radical history that we can put on paper. And then we can go ahead
0: and just push this to the side. Yeah. You know, I want to make it clear to everyone else, this commission's report was supposedly shelved once the Biden administration you know, came into, into office. But let me be clear. If We lose the Congress in 2022, meaning the Democrats, admittedly, hardly the radical group we would like to see hold Congress, but decidedly more progressive than anything the Republicans offer. If we lose Congress in 2022 and the presidency in 2024, this 1776 commission, this is going to be the guiding text, probably for historical education. And people shouldn't forget what George Orwell wrote in a novel, 1984. Those who control the present control the past. Those who control the past control the
1: present. But you know what's great about this, Professor K? You know what still inspires us? We say it, I think, once a show. In fact, I'm going to tee it up and then you finish it. We have it within ourselves to what,
0: Professor K? To begin the world over again. That fires me up. And I know it fires you up. I'll let. I'll remind everyone, those are not my words. Those are essentially the words of Thomas Paine, my hero. My, my hero. In fact, hold on. Let me, let me backtrack because these folks, I'm sure, are excited to know what we're going to be talking about next week. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, let me tell people, if they're interested in this kind of history, I do recommend they pick up my book, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, or a theme we'll be getting to in future weeks, The Fight for the Four Freedoms. What made FDR and the Greatest Generation truly great? I do recommend some other books along the way. I think most of the work by Eric Foner in American History, pick it up works on Civil War by James Oakes. Pick it up. If people are looking for me in particular on Twitter, it's Harvey J. K. -K H-A-R-V-E-Y-J-K-A-Y-E. Where are we going next? Well, I figured we ought to be turning to the question of the right to vote as we've been making such an issue of it. We should look at Susan B. Anthony, her speech in particular in the 1870s, where she defended her having voted. leave it at that. It's not just her defense of the right to vote. It is her defense of her having voted. And if we do things right or you do things right, we will be joined by Kitty next week. Absolutely. My brother, thank you so much as we
1: take back America one day at a time. Head down, keep going. But the struggle continues. The fight continues. And I, I like our side. Talk to you later, my brother. Talk to you soon. Go get that lamb chop. <laughs> <laughs> I am hey!
0: The KC Morning Show. You're listening to the KC Morning Show.